uh, Wednesday. It's midweek. And uh, here in Toronto, I mean, I know people are watching or listening to this podcast uh, all over North America. Oh, hell, around the world. Uh, I saw somebody watched it from Germany the other day, Bob. Somebody watched it from Germany the other day. Well, I guess things are pretty boring in Germany. But... (laughs) Uh, we got some, we, we got some snow on the ground here and, um, it's still coming down a little bit and we are, we are in uh, metropolitan Toronto. Um, our good friend and, uh, long time, no talk, uh, needs no introduction. Bob McKenzie from uh, TSN is with us, but he's up at the cottage and you've got McKenzie, you've got snow up there too. Yes, sir. Not a lot, but, uh, enough. Uh, any, any snow's too much for me. Um, as we all know, as we get to our age, age in life, I don't know about you, but when oh, I see yeah. that snow, I'm like, oh, come on, give me a break. I tell you, that, that, there's a senior's moment. Three guys talking about the weather. Unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's exactly. Uh... <laughs> oh, we got nothing up. And, and people, in, actually, people, people in Canada, people in Canada get pissed off too when you complain about the snow. Uh, they're like, yeah, come on, we're Canadians. That's what it's supposed to do in the winter. And I'm like, okay, fine, but I still don't want to clean the car off. Yeah. Uh, it's been a, it's been quite a while since uh, you and I have had a chance to chat uh, through uh, due to circumstances. I was going to say beyond our control, but uh, probably they were under our control. But uh, Mackenzie, of course, used to be a regular contributor to um, uh, primetime sports, uh, and then um, even when he was at T when he first went over to TSN from the hockey news on kind of a full time basis, it wasn't I guess until Mackenzie until Rogers took over. Um, the fan and put us on TV that we got into some problems, but um, it's nice to be able to chat with you again after uh, I don't even know how yeah. many years. Do you? It's been many years, but it's great to catch up. I've been watching from afar, watching the travails of Bob McCowan uh, yeah. and uh, all that goes on. Your your wine enterprise, your uh, uh, the uh, the employment situation, but yet here we are. <laughs> Uh, well, let's talk a little bit about the book. We want to talk about the World Juniors and some other hockey stuff, of course. But uh, now this is volume two of a book that came Correct. out, what, a couple of years ago? A couple of years ago, yeah. Everyday Hockey Heroes volume one came out two years ago. And this is volume two, surprise, surprise. But, um, and yeah, and there, there might be a volume three for all we know. And actually, when Simon and Schuster first came to me with the idea, which would have been about three years ago in November, um, they said, listen, we think if, if this goes as well as we think it's going to go, this could be something we do every other year uh, after that. So we'll, we'll do a volume. We'll come up with a paperback a year later and then come up with a new volume two years after that. So we'll see if that's the case, but it's been on some of the bestseller lists. So, so far, so good. Congratulations. Between, it, you, between you and Duthie and Burke, you, <laughs> the three of you seem to be uh, uh, cornering. Oh, I should mention Kiprios too, because I don't want to. I don't want the phone call. You sh- your guys are cornering the book market. Uh, yeah, J- James's book is doing really well. So is Burkey's. Uh, they've had, they've actually been out a little longer than our book has, but they they've been ahead of us on the bestsellers list. And James reminds me of that pretty much every day. And I haven't spoken to Burkey lately. <laughs> But if I did, he would remind me of that as oh, I, well. There, there's no question about that, you know. But exactly. here's the thing with Brian, Bob. Here's the thing with Brian's book. You've heard every story already. Exactly. And, and I your stories got, are new. I got some of the true ones too. <laughs> <laughs> 
so having gone through the uh, process of uh, writing a book, although it's been a while, I, I had a co-author. You have a co-author in this, and I think everybody probably has a different process of doing this. How did it work with you and Lang? Well, full disclosure, and I always tell people this, like Lang does way more work on the book than I do, um, mm -hmm. and uh, does a very good job. So here's my book writing history. 2008 or so, I, I wrote Hockey Dad, True Confessions of a Crazy Question Mark Hockey Parent. And, and I loved writing that book. It was a real labor of love. I always felt like that was the book I had in me that I wanted out about raising two boys in the minor hockey system in Canada and all the goofy, stupid-ass things I did as a hockey dad. Um, so I really enjoyed writing that book. It was fun and it was easy to do because, you know, I didn't have to, I didn't have to interview anybody. I didn't have to research anything. I just kind of had to go back and track the years my kids played this and make sure this, the stories were in chronological order. So I, that was a wonderful experience. Um, then 2012, we needed a new kitchen at the cottage and I got an offer to do a book. And that was Hockey Confidential. So trust, trust me, if, 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 if writing a book isn't a labor of love for you, it's just labor. And so I needed the new kitchen. And I love the finished product. And I'm really, really, really proud of the book Hockey Confidential that I did. But that book almost killed me. Like it physically took a toll with all my job and everything else going on, how busy I was. And I said afterwards, I said, that's it. I'm done. I'm never writing another book. It's labor intensive. It's really hard. And even though it more than paid for the kitchen, I was looking at it afterwards on the hourly rate. And I'm like, I don't know if this makes a lot of sense to do this. So as, as happy as you are with the finished product. So I, my book, I got a book agent. And he kept on coming to me with this idea and that idea. And I said, no, I'm not doing any more books. I'm not doing any more books. So then three years ago, November, uh, Kevin Hansen and Sarah St. Pierre from Simon and Schuster come to me and they say, Hey, we've got an idea. So they pitched me the idea. And the, and I gotta be honest, cynically, the first thing that appealed to me was that Jim Lang was going to do most of the work. I would write an introduction. <laughs> I would, I would write, I would write a, a chapter and the chapters are long. Like my one chapter in this volume is almost 10,000 words, um, which for some people is close to a book and, and that, but, I had huge input into the editorial direction in terms of the people that we interview, the people that we tell stories about. I love working with Jim and Sarah. And so, it, and, and quite frankly, to, to put the, the cynic in me aside, um, when they pitched me the idea of everyday hockey heroes, famous and not so famous people who have inspiring stories on and off the ice, a lot of the stories really moved me. I was really inspired by a lot of them and, and people I'd never heard of before. And I was like, oh, you know what? That's, a, that's just a great story. And I can see what they're trying to do with this book. And it's going to be a fun book to be. And honestly, I, all joking aside, it's, it's actually been a game changer for me personally in terms of the way I view hockey, the way I view hockey culture, the way I view people, and, and just our society at large. Isn't, isn't that the magic of, I think, Bob, guys that have earned their living in and around the game for so long, isn't that the magic of the game? Yeah, because it's the people that make this, you know, profession so, so fun, successful, and passionate. It's it's because it's I mean, I mean we, we, how many times can we do a, a CBA discussion? How many times can we talk about a power play? How many times can we we talk about you know escrow? But you know, you're around the game because of all the people you love. 
And yeah. I know I can speak personally. I'm around the game because, gosh, these are all my friends and, and, and the people you meet in, in even in your local arena. That's what makes it so much fun. Yeah, for sure. There's no doubt about that. And, um, and you know, great stories are great stories. Um, that, that's first and foremost. Um, and there's so many great stories within hockey. And as you point out, John, there's so many great people within hockey. Now, all that said, one of the things that struck me since I've been involved with this book is, is there's great people and there's great stories. Um, and, and it is a, a, a wonderful society, if you want to call it that. But it's also, at times, a closed culture. It's also, at, at times, where it is too insular, where because we've all been in the, like, all the three of us have been in it for so long, that you kind of wrap yourself around all the same sort of people. And, and, and what you realize is, as good a game as it is, as good as the people that are involved in the game is, are... Um, you know, you get to a point where, and we, we, we use this term hockey culture, and it used to be a really positive thing. Hockey culture was a great thing. Well, hockey culture has got a, a negative connotation now, and understandably so in many instances, because even mm-hmm. though it's a great game and there's so many great people, there are a whole bunch of people who, like you and me, we all love the game of hockey, and that's a common denominator. Every single person in this book, the common denominator is unbelievable passion and love for the game of hockey. So that's the starting point. But then what you find out is because it's a woman, because it's uh, the person's black, because the person's transgender, because the person's gay, um, because the person's different in some way, their experience with the great people and the wonderful society of hockey hasn't been nearly as positive as yours and mine because right. they start on the margins and they're trying to get into the center with the rest of us. And there are people in the center that are pushing them out and saying, no, you're, you're, not, you're not part of this group. And, and so in some instances, the best stories are the ones where, where these people got pushed away, pushed back, and got themselves to the center of it, and they're happy in a, in a better place because of it. Okay, so, so that, that's a really good point, and, and I, I 100% agree with you. Um, so as somebody who's a leader in the industry, and you are, how how and how do we open the doors better to to these these people? How do I we think, do it? I think we just need to have a greater sense of self awareness and and to realize that 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 we are fortunate that we you know the, the other term that that triggers some people now is white privilege and and so I think you've got to come to terms, especially those of us who are elderly white males. Uh, sorry, guys. Uh, How's in, the weather? In, How's the weather? Yeah, yeah speak exactly. for yourself. <laughs> yeah, uh, just because Bobcat's hair is still dark, you know, but uh, but us elderly white males have got to understand that that we do have white privilege, and 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 white privilege should never be confused with a privileged life, because I don't feel like when I grew up as a kid I had a privileged life. I had a blue collar family. My mom had rheumatoid arthritis. It was horrendous what she went through. Her life was a living hell. She ended up in a wheelchair for 16, 17 years. She died in her 50s because of complications from rheumatoid arthritis. My dad worked morning, noon, and night from 8 till 10, 8 in the morning till 10 at night and had to be a caregiver for much of his life. And, and I could go up and down the line of why I did not lead a privileged life in the blue collar growing up in Scarborough in the 1960s. But in terms of me 
wanting to be in the mainstream hockey media and be successful, the same as you, Bobcat, in radio and TV and Johnny, you in, in, in television, um, and that we had no obstacles in our way. There was nobody who ever said, uh, you can't do that because you're black or you can't do that because you're gay or you can't do that because you're transgender. So I think what we in hockey culture need to do is is just be aware that as much as we love the game, there are other people who love it just as much as us, but they don't get received as warmly by the hockey culture because they are different. And so then, then it's up to you to try and do one tangible thing to try and make those people feel more welcome. And for me, that's be part of this book and spread the word mm -hmm. that we all need to do a better job. With Bob McKenzie. Um my experience is um, slightly different. Uh, when, when I started having kids and my son started to play hockey, um, I can't, and I was always a hockey fan. Hockey, well, for anybody growing up in Canada, um, this was the game. You may like other sports, but hockey was part of your core. And um, he got involved in, he wasn't highly competitive, but... Um, uh, I started experiencing uh, parents, fathers, most specifically, who were yelling and screaming and uh, calling out obscenities and, um, and doing all the things that we don't want hockey parents to do. And I have to confess, Mackenzie, that that turned me off the game to a great extent. And I probably have to admit that I've had a very difficult time getting back to my roots of, of loving the game. It's always been tempered. Did you go through that at all? Um, yes and no. And, you know, and, and when you're talking to a guy who wrote a book about being a crazy hockey dad, um, I, you know, mea culpa on, on some things. But, sure. um, but, but there, there is no doubt. Um, I, I would go back and forth. I was like every other parent that you could get swept up in it at times. But, I always like to think, and if you, you know, when I read the book now and look back on it, you know, I, I, I think I understood the difference of, you know, when the lines were crossed and, and I didn't cross any lines horrendously, but nevertheless, there's a lot of things used to bother me, the same thing as you. Um, but I think, you know, and that's not just unique to hockey. That's that's life. I mean, no, I agree. There's just, yeah, there's just so many. You you take any segment of the population, and and uh, and and there's going to be an element of it that people go crazy and and they act stupid and and it does turn you off and it it, it does bother you. And so yeah, I, there were lots of times I'd be at a rink and I'd just be looking around at the way people were behaving and I'd be like, this is this is insane. Like come on, people, give your head a shake, and, and their kids. And, and to your point, and that, that's the other point, when you, you talked about viewing things through the prism of, of being a, a parent, or in this case, a hockey parent, and to what Johnny talked about a few minutes ago, about what can we all do to, to make hockey culture better? Um, I, I find a really good thing is to, anytime you're looking at any situation in the game, just any individual in the game and what's going on, just pretend that person is your kid and think about it for a second and say, okay, what if this story was about my kid? And I, I did that throughout the book. 
where what if what if my kid was Jessica Platt, who's transgender? What if my kid was Joey Gale, who's gay? What if my kid was uh, Rob Fakas' son, Louis, who was diagnosed with Duchenne muscular dystrophy? Um, you know, what, what, what if, you know, and, and, and that's because I think we all like to think we're really good parents, or we try to be, and there's nothing more important than being a parent, and nothing gets you, hits you in the heart more than when your kids are going through a good time or a bad time, you feel, you feel it with them. And, and that, and so it's a lot easier to be empathetic for what's going on in any given situation. If you just pretend the person you're analyzing or studying is actually your kid and what would you want for mm -hmm. them? And then, and that's, oh, the well way to govern, that's the way to govern your behavior. Just before we talk about the World Juniors and what's going on in, in, in the pros, I must, I must say, though, my, our, our sons are around the same age. Uh, and uh, my son, Jake, was a, loved playing the game. Uh, and, but when he stopped playing, I think I missed it more than he did. <laughs> I really do. I think I missed going to the rink and seeing those people. Uh, and, and, and for all the years that I have been in the, in the pro business, um, there was nothing like going to the local arena, having a coffee, sitting and watching your kid play the game. It, there, was some, there was a warmth to it. There was a magic to it. Um, and uh, it's something, as a parent, I think you, you really do miss. You really you know what, do you know, miss it when it happens. You know what intrigues me, guys? Um, I, I'm going to guess this for you, John, that you know this was long before you became a publicly recognizable figure. You were working in hockey, but you were behind the scenes. It was yep. a time when I was on radio, but I didn't get recognized very often. Um, Mackenzie, what was it like for you? Was this hockey news time when, when you were going to your kids' rinks, or were, were you by that time at TSN? and Did you get was, recognized? Yeah, I was already on television. By the, my, my son, Mike, was born in 86. My son, Sean, was born in 89. I started doing TSN work around 86, 87, 88, 89. There. That's that hockey news show. That's that hockey news show that Paul Graham invented for you. That's right. Exactly. So, <laughs> um, but we, um, so yeah, the, the, the kids grew up as, oh, that's, those are Bob McKenzie's kids. And right. that presented a unique set of challenges, but also a lot of rewards too. Um, and, um, and so, yeah, but uh, that most people were, most of the time people were pretty good, but if, if <laughs> I'll, I'll send, uh, if I have any copies left of the hockey dad book, Bob Cat, I'll send it to you because there are a lot of pretty funny stories about stuff where because of I was well known that things either went particularly horrible or particularly well uh, in, the, in the rinks. But to, to your point, John, um, I agree with you. Like on balance, when I look back at my kids' minor hockey career, uh, it was the it was the best of times. And there were some worst of times there because, you know, um, I had one son who had really bad concussion issues and had to quit the game of hockey at age 14. And those were dark, dark, dark times for our family to go through. And that gave me a unique perspective sure. on what it's like for these people that, that have concussions and, and, you know, traumatic brain injuries, nothing to be, to be trifled with. Um, but I also felt like when it was over and I was fortunate enough with, with my son, Mike, you know, he played four years of college hockey, NCAA, at St. Lawrence University, he played two years in the American League and the East Coast League, went to two NHL training camps with the Carolina Hurricanes. He packed it in. He'd gone as far as he was going to go. 
um, and, and didn't want to hang too around, around the miners too long. And, and when he initially quit, I was like, oh, man, you're right. I had this huge void in my life. But it didn't take me very long to think, you know what, there's a natural evolution to being a hockey parent. And the normal thing is for it to be over. And, yeah, there's sadness when it's over. But what am I going to do with all this free time? And suddenly it was it was like I was like this is awesome. And and so we never had a cottage when I grew up with when the the kids grew up because because they played lacrosse in the summer, hockey in the winter. We had no time for for cottage. And and as soon as as soon as Sean stopped playing and and Mike was done. We got a cottage, and all of a sudden, I was like, "What have I been missing all these years?" It was awesome. Well, they so had you had time to write a book. You had time to write a book. Then, yeah, so. one door closes, another one opens up. Well, the, tell you, the, the other thing is, uh, from that perspective, one of my goals for for my son was to love the game for the rest of his life. Yeah. And I'll tell you right now, he play. He's a goalie, so he plays more now than he ever did as a minor hockey player. And that's that to me. That's the sell, That's the satisfying part about being part of the game let's let's hey let's let, let's get to the world juniors yeah um you're going to edmonton uh, in about uh, 10 days uh hopefully everything is a hunky-dory and uh and and the covid testing is working and the all all the teams are there so uh, what do we, what do you expect out of this tournament well you know what john i think it's um i don't want to i don't even want to look ahead to the tournament yet i will in a second but i, I i'm almost holding my breath and saying okay you can't i can't look too much ahead to the first games on december 25th or in the case of canada december 26th um because we got to get these 10 teams from all over the world to edmonton on sunday sunday's the check-in day for for going into a a four-day quarantine period that's followed then by being released into the bubble and as everybody probably knows by now, the, the Swedes have had multiple positive tests this week in their camp. They've lost a number of players, including their head coach. Um, the Germans lost a couple of players. The Americans lost a few players, two players for Canada. Oh, five altogether were deemed unfit to play um, and, and sent home from the camp uh, in Red Deer yesterday. Um, so we got to get to Sunday. And, and right now, Alberta Health, and the federal government have conditionally signed off on all the protocols that would allow the world juniors to take place with hockey Canada and the double IHF. And so everybody's intent on trying to make that happen. But I mean, you'd be stupid not to look at the numbers skyrocketing in Alberta, um, mm-hmm. the healthcare system under, under extreme pressure in Alberta um, and uh, everything else that's going on with all these teams from all over the world and, and what have you. So I'm just taking it one day at a time, and the first phase is to get to Sunday and these 10 teams in, um, get through the quarantine period, and once they get released into the bubble, I think everybody's got a lot of confidence that this thing will probably go off without a hitch. But it's getting to that phase of December 18th or 19th before you can breathe easy and say, well, the tournament's going to be on. But all things being equal, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to the tournament. It, it's kind of a, a, a little bit of a dream team tournament to the extent that some players who otherwise wouldn't be available uh, because they'd be in the NHL are here. Now, Alexi Lafreniere is not there for Canada, but Kirby right. Dock is. Kirby Dock played last year for the Chicago Blackhawks, 64 games, and played extremely well this past summer for the Hawks in the, uh, the, the bubble Stanley Cup playoffs. And he's on Team Canada, and that normally wouldn't happen. So Canada's got a really good team, um, but so do a lot of the other, other countries. But until we see who's healthy, who's not, and what the rosters look like, it's a tough tournament to handicap. 
Well, you have been, I mean, obviously this is, a, this is one of TSN's um, biggest annual events and justifiably so, and you've been involved with it virtually since day one. And one of the things I know that you are asked to do is handicap this tournament, predict things. We all in our position are kind of compelled to do that. And I'm wondering how difficult it has been for you to really analyze and project what's going to happen in this tournament, given the environment, Mackenzie, that we are all living in and the fact that we haven't seen juniors play hockey since March. Yeah, it's crazy. So just as an example, the, the goaltenders for Team Canada, they got five in camp right now. Yeah. And, and, and none of them have played a meaningful game of hockey since last March. And, and they're, you know, they're going to get whoever they end up picking to be on the team, they're going to get one exhibition game against the Swedes and one exhibition game against the Russians before the tournament begins, and, and that's it. So mm -hmm. imagine a goaltender going nine months having played only two or three games and not really getting a lot of practice time either, to be honest. So the, the handicapping of how to pick the team uh, and how good the teams are, and even at the best of time, Bobcat, this tournament, I'm always asked to handicap it, and I'm always, hey, I go, hey, this is a two-week tournament where the teams have this, this, each team has never played together in the past and will exactly. never play together in the future. So how do you, you know, how do you make sense of that? And you, so you look at it, how many first-round NHL picks do they have? How many 19-year-olds do they have? How many returning players do they have? And you kind of look at those three things for the various teams and say, you know, if, if, you, if you come up with a bit of a formula, who's got the most first-rounders, who's got the most 19-year-olds, and who's got the most returning players? If one team has the most in all three of those categories, there's your favorite. But okay, it, let that, me, let me, that's an inexact science, and I haven't even done that exercise yet, by the way. But, well, but the, the, other, the other part of it is, is from, from the early days of you guys doing the tournament, there's a heck of a lot more information about some of those oh, European yes. teams that at one Big point time. you didn't know, like, like the Russians. Yeah. Like the Russians, I mean, I'm, 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 I've been involved a little longer on the, on the other side, on the pro side, but there are teams that came over to play tournaments and play in exhibition series here. We had no clue how half the, half the guys were, and I'm sure the same thing was true for the 18-year-olds. Yeah, for sure. And uh, But, the, Bob, you're right. I, I love this tournament. It's been, it's been great, and yet it's been great for TSN. They've had it since 1991, and I've done every one of those tournaments since 91, except for 92 in, in Fusen, Germany. Um, myself and Gord Miller, we got assigned to cover pre-Olympic hockey in Red Deer in Calgary that year instead of uh, going to the world juniors. That's the, that's the only one I've missed, but the, the Johnny will get a, a kick out of this. I actually did the last tournament, the last world junior tournament that the CBC did. Um, right. The play-by-play -play man was Don Whitman. The color commentator was Scotty Bowman. The host was Brian Williams. And this MOOC was the, uh, the and, analyst. And where was that one? Where was that, one, that, was in, that was in Helsinki and Turku. That was Eric Lindros's first as a first world junior as a 16 year old. So, so and even before that, I went to the Anchorage Alaska game uh, world juniors in '89. Saw Bure, Bielni, and Fedorov play as a line. I was at the '86 tournament in Hamilton, um, uh, the, the Cops Coliseum. That was terrific. So I've always had a huge affinity for this tournament, and it's been good for TSN. It's been good for my career and for hockey fans across Canada. Fingers crossed, as long as it can be done safely, 
I think we all need a little normalcy in our lives. And what's more normal than waking up around Christmas, Boxing Day, and New Year's um, with World Junior Hockey to watch? Uh, so, again, Williams, Whitman, and Bowman were on that, uh, that CBC broadcast. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah do the Sesame uh, Street thing. One of these things doesn't belong with the other. <laughs> no, I've never heard of any of them. So, anyway, uh, here's the intriguing thing for me in, in trying to look ahead. So, you know, we're not used to this COVID thing. We're never going to get used to it. But we have seen some things happen that have been unusual in many ways. We have a Stanley Cup champion was crowned, and it was Tampa Bay. No big surprise. We have had an NBA champion crowned. It was um, the LA Lakers. 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 No big surprise. We've had uh, a World Series champion crowned, the LA Dodgers. No big surprise. And yet I'm surprised in looking back at that, that that what has evolved has been as normal and as expected as it has been. Do you think that necessarily applies here to the World Juniors? Um, probably. I, I think it'll be the same thing again. I, but, but the funny thing with the World Juniors is Canada or the U.S. or Russia or Sweden or Finland could win the gold medal any year they have the tournament. Yeah, I agree. Those, those, those five hockey powers, any, any one of those five teams could win the tournament. The question becomes, could somebody other than those five teams steal a medal from one of those five teams. And, and that's really where the upset comes in. So, you know, I, I, I can't imagine there's a team other than one of those five hockey powers that's going to win the gold medal um, and COVID be damned, whatever. It's just, you know, as you say, at the end of the day, whether the pandemic's on or off, um, as you say, the, the, the good teams still find a way to win. But by you, actually, you bring up a really good point, Bob, about when they host the tournament. Uh, and here we are, Canada's going to host the tournament, <laughs> but there aren't going to be 19,000 people singing O Canada twice a night and flags waving every time. The NFL, the visiting team, has won more games now this year than, ev- than any other time before. Um, I'm not sure there is home ice advantage anymore in this tournament. There's, there's not, and, and here's the thing about the pandemic and how quickly things change. So a couple of weeks ago, conventional wisdom was that Canada and the United States are at a severe, severe disadvantage because most of the European players and teams have been playing in Europe. And they started, a lot of these leagues, Sweden's been playing since October. Um, and so, you know, the Swedes and the, the KHL has been going great guns and and you know lots of COVID outbreaks, but they just they just plow ahead and 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 away they go. So teams like Sweden and Russia have been playing; those kids have been playing hockey all season long. Most of the Canadian kids are not playing at all. Most of the American kids are not playing at all. So huge disadvantage. And then all of a sudden on Monday, the Swedes gather for their camp, and suddenly four or five of their top players have tested positive for COVID and they're out of the tournament. Oh, wait a second here maybe suddenly playing hockey in October and November isn't such an advantage if you end up getting COVID and now you yeah. can't even participate in the tournament. And suddenly Canada, who's, who, who's been in quarantine for 14 days and not very happy about it because these, these, these young kids that want to play hockey and are there in Red Deer, and they'd be locked, literally locked in their hotel rooms for 14 days with windows that can't open and going crazy. Suddenly they're like, 
oof, that turned out to be a pretty good thing for us. Maybe we, we mm. we're going to have a better chance maybe now of winning this tournament because maybe all of our players, our best players are going to be healthy versus some of the other teams. So it's, you know, pandemic hockey is, is, is crazy, but um, you just kind of take it a day at a time. You know, another thing that occurs to me here, just sitting and chatting with you two guys is you'll recall it wasn't all that many years ago that one of the annual topics of conversation when it came to the world junior or even the world championships was the size of the ice surface and the impact that that was going to have on the event. Would it be more of a disadvantage to Canadian teams playing on the bigger ice or more of a disadvantage to the European teams in the case of the world juniors coming to the North and playing the North American ice? That conversation, Mackenzie, seems to have dissipated. We, we don't really talk about that much anymore. Especially when it's Europeans playing on North American ice. I, I believe, yeah. for the most part, Europeans playing on North American ice have adapted much better than Canadians or Americans playing on international ice, where I still think mm -hmm. that there are examples to the contrary, and, and Mike Babcock coached teams at the Olympics would be the exception to the rule. But I still think when a Canadian team goes on to the 100 by 200 foot international sheet, that there are still difficulties for a lot of players in adapting. Whereas I think most of the Russians and Swedes and Finns and Czechs and all the other European nations have fully adapted to playing on uh, and done a much better job of playing on, on the smaller ice. And the, the funny thing is for the longest time, Back when we had hockey summits, what's wrong with the Canadian game? And people would say, well, one of the problems is the North American ice is too small. you got to open it up international size. So, so in, in the 80s and 90s, people were saying, you got to make the rinks in North America 100 by 200. And then now, you've actually, the International Ice Hockey Federation has actually mandated that the new official size for international ice is not 100 by 200, but smaller the, 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 the there's a hybrid version in, that, that's used a lot in Finland that's 92 by 200 and they split the difference between the 85 by 200 and the 100 by 200 right. and they come up 92 or 93 and and that's what most international hockey is aiming to go for and there's actually a movement within international hockey to maybe even go to 85 by 200. So everything's gone 180 degrees in like 20, 30, 40 years. Yeah. I actually think that there's a higher skill level required to play the game on the smaller rink. I think it's a higher skill level. I mean, Absolutely. so, so if, if we're trying to improve skill, why, why would we try to make it bigger guys? And, and, and when you go to 200 by 100, you put you put the importance of the game in the in the pockets in the hands of the coaches again, because yeah. now it becomes a chess game. Now it and, becomes a tactical game, and it's not it's not near as fun to watch. And because we're three old farts talking about stuff, think about where the NHL's even gone. The NHL used to have used to have the Chicago Stadium, Memorial Auditorium, Boston Garden, all these weird rinks that were like Fenway Park or Wrigley Field that had unique characteristics in terms of the, the, the angles on the corners, how, you know, mm -hmm. how small, how much smaller they were than even 85 by 200. And, and, and so in a, in a manner of speaking, when you were in the sixties and seventies with those old band boxes, it required even greater um, skill and ability 
to navigate Skill. in those unique circumstances. Whereas now you, you lose a lot of home ice advantage in the NHL now because every rink's basically the same, 85 by 200 and 20,000 seats. There's no unique qualities to the, to the rink. Put the Montreal Forum in that list too, Bob. A lot of people, they wouldn't oh, yeah. tell you, but the Forum, I mean, if you put a tape measure to the Forum, you, 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 would, uh, you wouldn't get all the way to the end before you realized you were finished. So that was, uh, <laughs> that, was, that was one of advantages that many people, Mr. Pollock, Mr. Bowman, you know, even people before them, Frank Selke Sr., that was the advantage they had in Montreal. Speaking of the NHL, I know you're not as plugged in, even though you're more plugged in than anybody. I'm the outsider um, now. Oh, yeah, bull. bull. Um, January 13th, January 13th. Well, that's what everybody tells me. Um, I still, (laughs) I still want to, I, I want to see the, listen, I don't think it's any, any secret that there are a bunch of NHL owners and I don't know exactly how many, because I haven't spoken to them and, and, and what have you. And as I say, I'm a little bit removed from that day to day stuff now. But I think there are a bunch of NHL owners that are not happy about going back and playing without fans and the expense of going back and playing. And there are some owners who would rather not play, although I don't think that's realistically an option. And I think Gary Bettman's probably made that point to the owner saying, yeah, it might sound good in theory or on a balance sheet to say we'd, we'd lose less money by not opening the doors. But if the NBA is playing and Major League Baseball is playing and the NFL is playing and the NHL is not, you, you, you can't, um, you know, you, you can't just opt out and shutter up the doors and say, we'll, we'll come back at you next year when the vaccine's around and, and until then have a good time. So, I, but I am curious to see, you know, Gary Bettman never holds a vote with the Board of Governors unless he knows that he's got all the votes necessary. That's always been his trademark. This is one time when I'm just a little curious to see what the vote might be. Um, for coming back, and I, because I know the players have said we're not going to mess around with the uh, the financial terms and conditions of the MOU or the CBA that we just ex- negotiated, and uh, and I think there are some owners that are like, well, I don't think we want to play right now, then, but I think I think we will play. It'll probably be January 13th, but I always allow in these situations where it could be closer to the end of January as well. Well, I mean, and you bring up a really good point because that that part is uh, it's the same thing as the World Junior. We have to get through the health crisis a bit for a little bit further before we decide whether we're we're playing now. Yeah. The one thing I can tell you is yesterday uh, he got a vote of confidence vote of confidence from that uh, very executive very small committee. executive committee, and even the toughest uh, of hawks that said they didn't want to play gay said, "Well, Gary, it's in your hands, and we trust you, and you're the guy yeah. to get this thing done." So. Uh, much as um, I, I have uh, very much enjoyed uh, this uh, renewal of acquaintanceship with uh, Mr. McKenzie after uh, many years of not being able to chat with him for political reasons that are absurd, but nonetheless, um, uh, we have things to do, uh, McKenzie. I know it's not snowing that hard where you are, but um, John has to go out and, and shovel the driveway. I, and well, I there's have no to snow go, where I live. There's no snow and, where I live. And I, I have to go and supervise the people that I pay to <laughs> shovel my driveway. So this all being, this all being the case, uh, we'll, uh, we'll wrap this thing up. Um, we wish you good luck with the book, of course. Um, Everyday Hockey Heroes, Volume 2. Is that what it's called, exactly? That's correct. More inspiring uh, stories, yes. We wish you good luck with it. I don't think you need it. Um, and uh, 
uh, I assume we will not have the opportunity to chat with you again before the holiday season. So um, we wish you and your family and uh, all around you a uh, happy holidays. And uh, I know you'll enjoy the uh, World Juniors. Um, and, um, you know, stay safe, pal, will you? Yeah, great to catch up with you guys. Absolutely. And uh, thanks for having me on and uh, allowing me to talk about the book and, uh, and everything else. And, and like you, Bob, um, I'm waiting for the, uh, the guy to come and plow the driveway uh, <laughs> since I live out here at, at, the, at the lake. And uh, oh I don't have any, I have no snow to shovel, but I do have a little snow up here that needs to be cut. Yeah. My pre-world junior haircut is today, so I'm off to get that trim. And, and, for, and for the record, I'll be both of your houses to do the snow very quickly. Okay? Yeah, hurry up. You're, you're on the schedule. You're on the schedule. So. Um, <laughs> Thank, thanks, Bob, guys. Bob. Thank you, pal. Bob McKenzie of TSN on the podcast today. We'll see you again on uh, Friday. Bye-bye.